Hey there, this is Nico from the Ethereal Embrace podcast, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, Shawnee, Catsbane, and Bazu return to the Copper Dragon and tell the others about the encounter with Easley. Catsbane and Shawnee both turn in early. While the young rogue is probably in for a restless sleep as she sorts through her feelings, it is Catsbane who really suffers through the night. In a twisted nightmare version of his childhood, he finds himself in a bizarre conversation with the demon Azor Azul through the medium of a stuffed toy. Azor Azul reveals that he has been the source of Catsbane's growing power all this time. In the morning, the PCs meet and confer with their new contact, Greenblood. Catsbane is fairly sure he recognizes the man as Sindwan, the former captain of the palace guard. He's right, and Sindwan is not happy to be working with the church. However, it seems that despite their very different end goals, the two parties have interests that align, at least for the time being. Together, they make their way to Whitestone Castle, passing through the Cernan Gate unhindered thanks to Greenblood's influence. When they reach the Eastern Tower, their reluctant ally unlocks the door and then leaves them to go on alone. Before he departs, he reminds them to get proof if they discover that the monarch is dead. Chapter 61 Part 1 Day 183 Morning Party Status Yellowfly 39 of 39 hit points Shawnee 30 of 30 Jace 37 of 37 Catsbane 17 of 17. Bazu, 16 of 16. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile times 2, Invisibility, Mirror Image, Haste, and Slow. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times 2, Bless, and Silence, 15 foot radius. Yellowfly pushed on the door minutely, peeked through the crack, and then opened it the rest of the way. He stepped through the threshold and into a long, wide hall. A single, unshuttered window, so high up on the wall that it almost touched the twenty-foot ceiling, admitted the hall's only light, a stretched waffle-shaped pattern caused by the window's lattice of bars that fell upon the floor. Another door, closed, was directly across the hall and in front of them, while the hall itself stretched away to their left into darkness as far as they could see. Yellowfly took in his surroundings and allowed his companions to file in after him. Each wall in this hallway was hung with portraits. Some were tall and life-size likenesses of the kings, queens, and their scions of ages past. 
There were lamps affixed to walls, too, all of them unlit. Chandeliers hung from the ceiling in intervals, their dull gold surfaces reflecting the low light. Here and there, Yellowfly could see sculpted busts, also of the notable faces of history, he assumed. These rested atop pedestals, half-hidden in alcoves. The overall effect was impressive. There was a long, proud, and powerful history on display here. To Yellowfly, the faces were interchangeable, but Catsbane could name many of those he saw, both in the portraits and sculpted busts. Here was Bertram the Wise, with his long curly beard carved from the same white stone used to build the castle. On the wall was a portrait of Queen Thanusha, she of legendary beauty, with her long blonde hair coiled and draped over one shoulder. In the painting, she was wearing a robe of blue brocade and a mild smile. Next to that piece was a portrait of a young man sitting astride a horse. The man might have been Lord Barlet, a noble of two generations ago, who was still remembered by those in the know as the most licentious and philandering man of his time. Catsbane watched as Yellowfly crossed the hall and pressed his ear to the door. He must have been satisfied that there was no sound beyond, because he pushed it open and walked through. Catsbane allowed Jace to go ahead of him, then Bazu and Shawnee. He followed in the rear. He could hear Shawnee stifling a little laugh as he entered the room. Jace, standing beside her, wore a smugly satisfied expression, and Catsbane guessed he must have just said something amusing. They were in a large dining hall, the biggest any of them had ever seen. It was square in shape, 60 feet to a side. The whole of the Happy Harpy Inn would have fit inside it. Instead, it contained an enormous U-shaped table, with chairs arranged around the perimeter, and the inside cutout left without places to sit. This was presumably so servers could move about and do their work without reaching over or between the guests. A single gigantic chandelier hung above the center of the table. Although he had lived in Whitestone for quite a while, Catsbane had never taken a single meal here. He had never even seen the inside of this room before. Just as they were in the hallway, the walls of this room were decorated with portraits of sober-faced men and elegant women, each of whom was more impressive than the last. Fresh air and light entered liberally through a series of unshuttered, lancet-topped windows arranged in a line and looking out over Blue Heron Lake. The only other exit was through an archway in the far corner. Yellowfly motioned for the others to follow and circumnavigated the table as he headed to it. As he passed by them, Catsbane looked out the windows at the sapphire hues of the water far below. The next room was even more spacious than the last. While the previous area had been a huge square, this one was a long rectangle. It must have stretched a hundred feet long and forty wide. At a glance, it was clear they were in Colfrey's throne room. For all the space in here, it was mostly empty. There was a green carpet runner, darkly stained in certain places. One end connected to an oversized pair of ornate double doors. These were set in the southern wall and obviously opened to the great hall they had passed through on the way to the dining area. The other end led to a spot before the north wall where two pairs of windows flanked twin wooden thrones on a low dais. Catsbane had never been here either, but he imagined that, seated there, Colfrey must have seemed as though bathed in splendor from the light outside. On a very bright day, one would have needed to squint to look up at him. The companions filed in tentatively, one by one. None of them were used to rooms of this size, and by habit, they cleft to the nearest wall. The throne room, like the dining room, was well lit, and they could make out certain details right away. Both thrones had been gilded, but someone evidently had put some effort into scraping off the gold leaf. The only thing of value in the room now was an enormous glaive, bolted to the wall above the throne. Yellowfly walked over to have a closer look, with Shawnee by his side. He pointed up at it and said, Look, the stone around that fixture is chipped. 
Someone has tried to remove it. It was true. The weapon, a magnificent shaft of ironwood, banded in platinum and topped by a blade of dark metal, had been bolted to the wall with the obvious intention that it would never be removed. It would take a blacksmith to get this thing down. Whoever stripped the gold leaf off the throne must have been in a hurry, said Shane. She was no longer looking at the glaive, and was instead crouching down to inspect the leg of one of the thrones. The wood looked as though it had been gnawed on by an animal. <laughs> Some thieves take no pride in their work, joked Yellowfly. I suppose we'll find the whole castle has been looted if this is the condition of the throne room. Yeah, probably, agreed Yellowfly, shrugging. We should keep moving. There are a lot of rooms left to check. He pointed at the big double doors. Those must connect to the central hall. What do you suppose those doors lead to? Now he indicated a smaller and less ostentatious set of double doors at the far end of the room, opposite the entrance to the dining hall. Some kind of waiting room? Isn't that how it works around here? Rich merchants wait for hours to complain about each other to the king? And to kiss his arse, said Yellowfly with a chuckle. <laughs> that goes without saying. Let's find out if you're right. Yellowfly led the others through the room and crossed the very spot where... Just a little over two months before, the terrified Briar Patches had witnessed his king reduced to a drooling idiot by something that looked a little like the Royal Archmages. The smell hit Yellowfly the moment he pulled open the doors. The fighter staggered back, retching, and then the stench hit the rest of them. Vesaluna's tears, choked Shawnee, her own eyes watering. She bunched up her cloak and brought it up to hold over her mouth while she moved closer to Yellowfly and looked into the next room. This one had windows that ran along the north wall, a continuation of the pattern seen in the dining hall and throne room. It was clearly a waiting room, and was liberally furnished with chairs, small tables, a long bench, and several divans. It was on one of these divans, located under a lancet window, that they found the source of the smell. Splayed across it was a mangled and rotten corpse. Ragged bits of grey-green flesh littered the floor, and the blood-stained rug beneath it. It's not pleasant said Yellowfly for the benefit of those who couldn't see what he could, though Shawnee's expression and the sour odor did not add up to much of a mystery. Jace began to draw his sword, but stopped when he looked up at Yellowfly who had a hand out. There's no need, Jace. Not yet. The fighter snapped his sword back into its scabbard and came over to stand beside the other man. Although he was mentally prepared to face whatever was inside, he was still surprised by the emotions that threatened to overwhelm him when he looked beyond the door. Hello Weirdos, my name is Diogo Nogueira, and with Weird Games and Weirder People, you get to listen to weird and wonderful creators of the tabletop role-playing game space, talking about the weird in themselves and in the world. We talk about game design, art, creativity, spirituality, supernatural events, and a lot more. We go deep, we get weird, and we love it. So tune in and get weird with Weird Games and Weirder People wherever you listen to your podcasts. Dramatis Personae, Jace. Jace has seen dead bodies before, plenty of them. In fact, he has watched people die and has killed several men himself. Anyone who grew up in Silmoral witnessed at least a few public executions during their lives. Jace had an experience when he was 17 years old that affected him deeply. He'd been working for Nudge Pickens for two years by that age, mostly doing small jobs, moving and guarding packages as a low-level member of the Church Thieves Guild. Everyone had to start at the bottom, Nudge had told him, and Jace was no exception. Jace didn't mind at all. He was making good money, and life as a guild member was kind of exciting. Also, every now and then, one of Nudge's jobs was actually interesting. 
One winter, he was given the task of delivering several packages to Nudge's contact in Wilmington, which was several days' travel to the south. Jace had never visited any further than Brannon before, and he looked forward to seeing more of the world. He'd heard that Wilmington had a vastly different feel to it, being influenced by the exotic kingdom of Zaysha, located not far to the east. This report turned out to be something of an exaggeration, Jace discovered, but he still enjoyed the trip down through the Holloway, continuing between Brannon and Wolf's Cliff Keep, then along the south road towards Burke. Since these roads were known to be dangerous, Nudge had partnered him up with another junior church member. Altweg was a couple of years older than Jace, and he was more or less good company, although he had an appetite for drink, women, and gambling that made Jace a little uncomfortable. The two men shared several misadventures in Wilmington over three nights, who were laughing about them as they made their way back home. Despite having gambled away his entire advance and borrowing a small sum from Jace, Altweg was in good spirits. He spoke excitedly as they traveled, but at one point, he practically whooped in delight. Altweg had noticed a shape a little ways off the road and half buried in snow. Jace had to run after the man, who raced through the powder like a child, waving his hands in the air and calling for his friend to hurry up. Come on, Jace! As he got close, Jace noticed prints in the snow. Most had been destroyed by his reckless companion, but not all of them. He stopped and let Altweg run ahead so he could examine them. They were animal prints, but these were much bigger than any he might have expected to see. Although raised in the city and more familiar with the inside of an ironmonger's shop in the woods, Jace could recognize basic animal tracks. What he was looking at now were not from any rabbit, they were more like a wolf's tracks. But what kind of wolf had paw prints as big as these? He put his hand close to one of them. Even with his fingers splayed, he couldn't cover it. Hurry up, Jace! Hearing his name called again brought his attention back to Altweg, who was a hundred paces ahead and pointing down. When Jace didn't make it to join him, he waved him over and called again. Jace! Jace looked in every direction for the animal that had made the tracks. They couldn't have been that old after all. But, seeing no threats along the road or beyond the tree line, he jogged ahead and joined his friend. Unsurprisingly, the shape Altweg was standing over was a corpse. Some lone hunter by the looks of it, though what had once been a person had been reduced to a head atop a mass of shredded fabric, felt, and bone. The viscera had frozen, and the body was stiff, with arms and legs thrown out at a big letter X. The hands were clenched. Long ginger hair fell down and into bulging, glassy eyes that stared up and into the falling snow. Upon seeing the body, Jace was suddenly struck with the indifference of the world to those who lived in it. This had once been a young man with a life and a family and hopes and dreams, maybe not so different from the hopes and dreams Jace had. Where was the dignity or the justice in what he saw here? As unhappy as the experience was, it got worse when Altweg shoved the corpse roughly onto its side, trying to get at an intact belt pouch he had spotted. He already had a short bow and a half-full quiver off the body. When he pushed it, the corpse's dead eyes fell on Jace and seemed to gaze into his very soul. At the same moment, the pale jaw unhinged and a bloated gray tongue poked out like a gigantic maggot. <laughs> Jace had fallen back into the snow in shock and horror while Altweg cackled at him like a deranged <laughs> hag. <laughs> Jace returned to Wilmington several times over the years that followed, but he never saw Altweg again. There was a rumor that the man had ran up a gambling debt with the wrong person. Some stories say he fled to Burke, others to Camranth. Jace had even heard that Altweg was made an example of, tortured before being murdered. Jace would never learn what actually happened to his former companion, but the image of the dead hunter with his huge blank eyes and that horribly putrefied tongue, that he saw again and again in his dreams, and in his nightmares.
I would say that, by now, the companions have been in the castle for about 20 minutes, so it's time to make the first wandering encounter roll. Just as a reminder, I already made a roll at the end of the previous episode that determined the first closable window they came across would indeed be closed. I just wanted to clarify that I haven't used that result yet, because all the windows they've come across so far have no shutters, and so they cannot be closed. Okay, back to that wandering encounter roll. For this, I roll a d6, and if the die shows a 1, they'll have to deal with Krell, who's been turned into a Yethhound and now spends his cursed days and nights roaming the halls. Of course, since Yethhounds are extremely vulnerable to sunlight, even on a 1, we aren't going to see Krell busting through the door. I'll have to figure out something else, but I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the roll, on a d6. A 4. At least for the next 20 minutes, the PCs are safe. Let's get back to the narrative and see how they're reacting to the discovery of the corpse now that the initial shock has passed. Chapter 61 Part 2 Day 183 Morning Party status The party status is unchanged. Jace, I need you to guard those doors over there while we look around. Yellowfly had noticed Jace's strong reaction to the body and guessed he would prefer a job that did not involve examining it any further. He must have guessed right, because Jace, looking a little sick, walked quickly away without protest. There were two sets of double doors here in addition to the pair they had come through. One almost certainly connected to the Great Hall, with its busts and portraits. The other was smaller, like the ones going back to the throne room, but its doors were wide open. As he went, Jace slid his sword from its sheath. Shane was not squeamish, and she ran her eyes over the corpse on the divan with a cool, disinterested expression. The victim was female, a courtier, judging by the dress. Her torso had been savaged, and the exposed tendons and bones that remained intact barely held on to its limbs. Her head was thrown back, and blonde ringlets cascaded over the edge of a cushion onto the floor. The woman's face was a mask of abject terror. Her eyes were impossibly wide, and the corners of her mouth were stretched to each side. Her swollen tongue was beginning to poke its way out from between the teeth, looking like a timid gray mouse in its hole. Shawnee was busy now removing several pieces of jewelry from the body. She looked up and said, I don't think she'll need these anymore. In the palm of her gloved hand were three thin bands of gold set with multicolored gems. Shawnee put these in her pocket and then glanced at the place where the woman's throat had once been. If she'd been wearing a necklace when she died, it was gone now. Or maybe it was just impossible to make out among the folds of torn muscle and gristle. What do you suppose killed this poor woman? asked Yellowfly. This woman was never poor, replied Shawnee with disdain, not trying to be funny. But she wasn't killed by a blade, that's clear enough. Did Kulfri keep guard dogs? Maybe one of them was left to starve and went berserk. Her eyes flicked over to the door Jace was guarding, but all was quiet and still. Well, that makes sense, but by Chartoon, just look at the expression on her face. Have you ever seen anything like that, Shawnee? Nobles are probably scared of their own shadows, replied the young rogue dismissively and standing up. Catsbane and Bazu had chosen to let the others look closely at the body. Meanwhile, they spoke to each other in whispers, trying to alleviate the anxiety by pointing at certain portraits and guessing the identities of the noble faces they contained. Whether it was out of curiosity, a desire to be away from the corpse, or even just to prove that he was not afraid, Jace decided to look into the next room, it was dark through the open doors, so first he knelt down and unpacked his lantern. Using a tinderbox, he quickly had the lamp lit and proceeded through the doors, holding it in front of him. There were two distinct smells in here, both gentler on the senses than the waiting room's odor of decay. The first was of books. 
He was in a library, and it must have held over a hundred old volumes. They were arranged on shelves which dominated each of the square room's 40-foot-long walls. Some shelves were open. Others had cabinet fronts of dark wood carved with such minute precision that they resembled lace. The second odor here was of lamp oil, but it didn't come from Jace's lantern. The room had four stanchions, each bearing a cresset the size of a half-helm. One of the stanchions had been knocked over, and the bowl it had once supported had emptied its contents onto a carpet runner. This runner had once connected Jace's double doors with another single door, kitty corner from where he now stood, and wide open. The runner was bunched up like a concertina near that door, not far from the toppled floor lamp. The lock on the far door, he could see even at this distance, was splintered. The door itself leaned drunkenly, as though one of its hinges had been broken. Jace cautiously stepped into the room, taking in more details. Its contents, taken together, told a story. At some point, the courtier from the previous room had run through here, chased by... something. She had closed the door behind her, but her pursuer had broken through it, knocked over the floor lamp, and bunched up the carpet as it went. It then caught up to her in the other room, and killed her. By now, Catsbane and Bazu had joined Jace in the library. They took in the scene and whispered askance to each other, probably coming to the same conclusions as Jace. The fighter couldn't hear him, but Catsbane also told the cleric that he had been in this room a couple of times. Most of the books here were individual histories and of little interest to magic users, but Carrick had sent him here on two or three occasions to look up some detail or other. Just then, Shawnee and Yellowfly entered, and now the whole party was together. After a cursory glance around, Shawnee made right for the far door. Even though it was dark beyond the opening, and even though the door lined up with the ones they assumed led to the Great Hall, she could tell that this one did not. The floor was different, and there were no portraits on the walls in the room beyond. Shawnee didn't go through, but instead made an inspection of the door's broken lock. It was clear that it had not been designed with security in mind. It was probably just meant to keep the door from swinging open on its own. Still, something had hit it with considerable force. She held up her hands to the others and made the sign that indicated they should be quiet. Then she closed her eyes and listened. As an 8th level thief, Shawnee has a 4 in 6 chance to hear noise. Thing is, I'm not certain there's anything to hear, even if she does make a successful check. Earlier, I made a full map of Whitestone Castle, but I also decided that I didn't want to know where Kral was at any given time. I thought it would be more fun if I got to experience a little of the surprise, and even fear, of this part of the adventure along with the party members. So, what to do? I think I'll roll the hear noise check at disadvantage. If Shawnee succeeds on both dice, she'll hear something worth hearing. Any other combination of results, two fails or one fail and one success, will mean silence, either because her senses fail her or else there's just nothing to hear. It's not really important to distinguish which is the case. Okay, here comes 2d6. I've got a 4 and a 5. Shawnee opened her eyes. She had her head cocked to one side in a manner that Jace thought looked bird-like. She also still had her hand in the air, but all of a sudden she dropped her arm and shrugged. I'm fairly certain we're the only ones in here, she said, and walked through the door. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. 
You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your very kind reviews. This one is by Magic JMS on Apple Podcasts. Magic JMS writes, Even though I'm over 50 and began playing D&D with the 1981 box set, I never really got the appeal of OSR gaming. Thanks to this podcast, I not only get it, but I went out to buy some OSR games to play with friends. This is an absolutely terrific storytelling and gaming podcast to consume, and I'm thankful for John's passion and care in creating it. I started from the beginning and have just finished episode 52 of the first story, so I have a lot of fun ahead of me. But I couldn't wait any longer to write a review and praise the work. I'm constantly on the edge of my seat, totally immersed in the story. In fact, I've actually started to slow down in my binging so I don't finish the episodes too quickly. Finally, it's an inspiration for my own writing project and will undoubtedly bring me fuel to keep going when I need it. Keep up the great work, and thank you. Wow, what a treat for me to receive a review like that. My sincere thanks, Magic JMS. I hope you find the resolution to Season 1 to be satisfying, and I hope you'll try out Season 2 as well. Maybe you should take your writing project and turn it into a semi-actual play. Actually, I'd encourage anyone listening who's thinking about jumping in to go ahead and do it. Whether by blog, YouTube, or podcasting, it's an extremely gratifying way to produce stories, and it still feels very much cutting-edge in terms of experimental fiction. Although this episode doesn't feature any guest voice actors, it does feature a collaborative musical piece with Kyellen in Jace's Dramatis Personae section, and the bit of score I came up with after my interview with him. Thanks, Kyellen, both for the collab and for the inspiration. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. You can also email me at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related things. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. It's the story where chaos rolls. You ever wanted to play Shadowrun? You know, the cyberpunk tabletop game where man meets magic and machine? It's too hard though, right? Too crunchy? Too clunky? It's a lot of math. Wrong! Pink Fohawk is a Shadowrun 2nd edition actual play podcast, played by the rules, but fast and loose. With all the 80s cyberpunk edginess you know and love, where the hair is big and the explosions are bigger. Follow the story of two rad Shadowrunners making a name for themselves in the mean streets of 2053 Seattle. Tina Bone Meal, nine and a half feet of pure troll muscle, surveillance expert and aspiring actress. John Anderson, former company man with a resume shrouded in mystery and a black belt Nikito. Check out Pink Fohawk Podcast, available everywhere you listen to podcasts.